Welcome again to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. Thank you for joining us on this special Barbecue Benefit Sunday. Uh, we are in week two of our Unshakables series that this video just described. Um, I think one of the least, in my opinion, one of the least popular promises of Jesus is when he promised, y'all ready for this? In this life, you will have trouble. Another way of saying it is, in this life, you will be shaken. And not the good kind of shaken, like the, you know, shake it on the dance floor shaken, or even like the neutral shaken, like the shake, shake, shake it off shaken. But like, when I say shaken, I mean like betrayal disease, bankruptcy shaken. In this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You can be shaken and yet not shaken apart in your person. Jesus promises that if you build your foundation in your life on hearing what he says and then obeying what he says, this is what he teaches is the unshakable faith that you can live even in a life when you are shaken from time to time. Some of us in this room are a little bit too young to understand that all this stuff that I'm talking about, it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. So today I think it's perfectly uh, apropos that the second, uh, uh, appropriate, that the second message in our unshakable series is unshakable Surrender. Today we're going to discuss the vital, necessary foundation of the lordship of Jesus and obedience unto him. The unshakable life lives in surrender to Jesus as Lord. I'm going to ask you to do what we do every week. Can you stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? Get a little unshakable power. John 14, I'm going to start with verse 15. Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give me, give you another helper to be with you forever. Everyone say forever. forever. He says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest or show Myself to him. Verse 22 Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and make, we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 
The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things that I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, you say some crazy, audacious things here, and then you backed it up. So help us to be in a state of heart that we can really consider what it means to obey you, and the beautiful, amazing consequence of all the risks associated with a life that's lived in surrender to you, and then necessarily the, the risks associated with not living in surrender to you. Help us to live a life that glorifies you in a way that liberates us in the adventure of knowing you and making you know. Amen. Now, with a fresh context of what we just read from John chapter 14, I want to read to you a famous poem entitled Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Henley's life, needless to say, was shaken. He suffered from diabetes, but from diabetes in the 19th century. Uh, He had two amputations, and think about this. Not only was his post-amputation lifestyle a little different because it was the 1800s, but think about how the process of amputation had to work out in the 1800s. This man was shaken, and yet listen to his inner resolve at the end of his life when he writes this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, yet unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll... I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I wonder what you think and what you feel when I read these words. Now, I know what our culture has conditioned us to feel and how how we're supposed to react, given that the whole rugged individualism thing is like sacred dogma and the whole American identity. I know what our culture thinks, but church, what concerns me is what you think and what you feel when you hear these words. 20th century author and theologian A.W. Tozer said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now with that said, I think What comes to our minds in our hearts when we read a poem like this is also telling. It's diagnostic of the state of our heart and our surrender to either Jesus 
as the master of our fate and the captain of our soul or someone else. Regardless of if it's an American virtue to try to captain our own soul or not. I think we're conditioned in our culture to trust no one except for ourselves, right? And we are supposed to spurn authority, especially authority that claims that he has the right to rule over you. And we're more likely to amen Henley in his poem here for his bold self-will than we are to bow to Jesus' will and his really authoritative demands that he made in the verses that we just read. We're unlikely in our flesh to say, yeah, definitely I trust you more than my own thoughts and feelings. But I think we're all gravely wrong in this. The words of Hensley's poem and so many others like it. I mean, they're countless if you look around culture. I think there may be anthems for American or, or Western pride, but they are the antithesis, the opposite of what surrender to Jesus really looks like, church. And so I'm concerned about the state of our psyche when it comes to lordship. And specifically as I'm thinking about the words that Jesus wrote and Jesus spoke and John wrote. Now I'm going to let us off the hook for a second and at least point out like so many lies that we believe. There's just, the devil uses just a little ounce of truth. So let me let us off the hook for just a little bit. I think history as far as this whole thing of authorities and stuff like that, history has taught us to be a little bit skeptical of leaders. And often, I think, for good reason. I think many people, how many people can look around and be like, okay, man, this world leader over here, man, he or she's doing such a good job that what we all need more of is just to give that guy a little more power. That's what we all need right now. No, we don't think that. We, there's good reasons, I think, to be a little bit of, you know, skeptical of you know, the system, whatever that is. But here's the problem. There is this disproportionate reality that we're all unaware of. We're rightly skeptical in some ways of others, but we're nowhere near as skeptical as we should be about ourselves about our own ability to lord our own lives and to lead our own hearts and to captain our own souls, we should be extremely skeptical about our thoughts and our feelings and our will. Now, compared to Hitler, you know, I feel pretty good about myself, right? Like, man, uh, what God's given me to, to captain, you know, me and my little kingdom here, compared to Hitler, I'm doing pretty good. But compared to the purity and the power of Jesus, I am categorically not that different than Hitler. And so if I think that I can boast in not being Hitler, and yet areas of my life where I have not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, it becomes extremely oppressive over myself and over anyone else under my leadership. I think at the heart of our disobedience and our struggle to obey what Jesus says when he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. I think the fundamental issue is we have a misunderstanding 
at the core of who Jesus really is. Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus is greater than you know. It's different than you think. And it's better than you can imagine. So here's how I want to organize the second half of my message here. I want to do all that I can with you, church, by the Spirit of the living God to plead with you that Jesus is the only truly liberating leader that has earned the right to be the master of your fate and the captain of your soul and to plead with you because it's a daily choice we make, this lordship thing, and the consequences of liberty or the opposite. We're either allowing him to be the master of our soul and we're free, or we are trying to be captain and we remain slaves to our own impurities and selfishness. And this is a daily fight for joy in him. So considering the gospel text that we first read from John 14, I'll go back a little bit and unpack it. But considering these things, I want to talk a little bit about what real surrender looks like. Okay, number one, what is surrender? Number two, what's not surrender? And then finally, three, how do we walk in surrender? So number one, what, what is surrender? I'm going to just put it really simply because Jesus puts it really simply. John chapter 14, verse 15, the first verse we read, he says, if you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commands or keep my commands as the ESV renders it. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Uh, it sounds, he said exactly what it sounds like. Jesus expects surrender to be the exact same thing as obedience. When I was 14 years old, I'd grown up in a Catholic home, and I, I sure knew all about the gospel. I am, I am a real religious man. It was my anthem. And I knew a lot about the gospel, or so I thought, and I was invited to Bible studies and stuff. I remember a very peculiar question, though, I never heard from my friends in the Catholic Church. One of my friends in high school, right when I got to high school, who I used to, to uh, smoke with, just do a bunch of not... Uh, good things in middle school with. I see him in high school, and he's living differently. And he would ask me strange questions that I didn't really have a paradigm for. He'd say things like, hey, is your life fully surrendered to Jesus? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. But I realized that as I got around these people who were living in surrendered lives, I kind of realized in contrast uh, with my own life how different it was. Uh, as I've said before, I, I thought that the only people who even tried to obey the religious rules was just, they were just bored. They, they couldn't have as much fun as I was having. You know, probably old people or ugly people that wanted to try to be religious, but, you know, I was going to have a good time while I was young, right? I saw these people living in full surrender to Jesus, and their lives were living in obedience. Surrender to Jesus is plain and simply obedience. Jesus has high expectations of what our life is to look like. And when I came and drew near to, to Jesus and saw the gospel work through these people and they preached to me and showed me God, by God's word what I was missing out on, I saw a new power and a new joy that was way better than the sin that I had previously thought was way cooler. Jesus expects 
obedience. Jesus has a type of surrender that he's paid for that is a life that we are to live if we are his. I said a second ago that surrender to Jesus is greater than you know because you need to know that he expects more than you know. And he's a bigger deal than you may know. Some of us in here complain about having to pay taxes to the government. Uh, Depending on uh, what income bracket you're in, you could pay almost half of your income to Uncle Sam. Well, don't get, don't be mistaken. Jesus expects more than that because he's greater than Uncle Sam. Christians give tithes. We, we give one-tenth of our income to the local church. But don't, don't get me wrong. Jesus uses the tithe as a sign and a test to show that all of our money and all of our lives are to belong to him in full surrender and obedience. Jesus is greater than Uncle Sam. And Jesus is either, get, brace yourself for a second, Jesus is either the Lord of all in your life or he's not the Lord at all in your life. He's greater than you know. He expects, therefore, more than you could ever imagine. Later in this passage, he, he clarifies even more. I think they weren't quite understanding him when he says, hey, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. In uh, verse 22, uh, Thomas, or no, Judas, one of the Judases, breaks in and kind of, he's like, yeah, yeah, I know all that, but, but when are you going to manifest yourself to the world? Like, he was asking, like, you know, I got all this obedience stuff, even though he didn't. He's like, but Jesus, what I want to know is when are you going to do one of your miracles on Facebook Live or Instagram video? That's what's important to me. And Jesus totally disregards this question. And he says, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will, we will come and make our home with him. He reiterates. And then he talks about the father's love. Now, this is not saying that the Father's love is conditional upon our behavior or our love. What Jesus is saying here is that our behavior completes the cycle of the Father's love with the Son's love and our obedience to the Son. And it's an energizing cycle of of power and obedience and love and obedience. The Father already loves us. The question is, is are we loving Him back? Have you ever heard of the book... uh, the five love languages. Anyone here? I've been married for 11 years, and I've uh, progressively learned my wife's uh, love language, learned the hard way a few times that her love language is gift-giving. Uh, and I thank God the last four or five years because I have two, my two middle kids, their birthdays remind me, they immediately precede uh, our anniversary and Mother's Day, praise God. Uh, so I don't miss that like I used to. That's my wife's love language. What do you think Jesus' love language is? According to him, Jesus' love language is obedience. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. As parents of small kids, we can understand that we expect our kids to obey us. Like, hey, don't touch that hot thing. You might not understand it right now. You don't have to understand it. You just have to obey me. How much more with Jesus that knows way better about life than we do, 
is, is our love for him and our obedience to him a vital thing? So, so what is surrender? Surrender is obedience to King Jesus. Rather than walking in obedience to your own flesh, to your own fears, to your own worries, to your own concerns, it's walking in obedience to Jesus and what the Bible says. So what is, number two, what is not surrender? What, what is not surrender? If I were to categorize, I think the two most common counterfeits for what true surrender and obedience to Jesus is in a life that's lived in, 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 under his lordship, the two most common counterfeits are legalism and license. So remember, true surrender to Jesus, obedience, it's actually liberating. But license and legalism leave you isolated to yourself and enslaved still. So remember, true surrender is simply, I love Jesus, and so I obey him. It's kind of the opposite of when he said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Well, I love Jesus, and therefore I obey him. Legalism has it backwards. Legalism says, if I obey Jesus' commandments, then he'll love me. And, and usually it's, if I obey all these extra weird rules I put into it that he never said, if I do all these things, then Jesus will love me. But that's, that's wrong on two levels. Number one, we've already seen his love for us is unending. What I love about this passage that we read at the start is you have the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is so clearly uh, displaying the unending love of God to us. God loved us before we were even lovable before we were even able to love him back. So the, the offense of legalism that says, oh, I can earn your love by performing this and that ritual is a big lie. The other issue is, is we can never do it. On our own strength, we can't perform good enough. We make up rules and we try to like get those rules our, our way to heaven. No, that, that never works. You can't not drink beer your way to heaven. By the way, the Bible doesn't say anything about not drinking beer talks about getting drunk. But you can't just obey rules that you set up your way to heaven. The, the gravity of our sin and our separation and what's needed to get to God is a lot bigger than just not drinking beer or not doing this, this, or that. It's huge. It's infinitely big. So big that God had to send his only son to remedy the issue. You can't legal, legally walk and try to follow rules enough your way to heaven. Now, the other counterfeit, the ugly twin sister of legalism is license. License says, since Jesus loves me, I can do what I want. So instead of, if I perform all these things, then Jesus will love me, this is backwards. This says, since you know, I know he loves me, I can just do what I want. This is absurd. Imagine this. Hey, wife, you know, since we've been married for 11 years, I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced you love me now. So since you love me, I'm going to go ahead and cheat on you. Well, that sounds absurd, right? You say, Pastor Peter, that's a crazy example. That's out there. No, this is how we treat God. And he's not cool with it. This is a counterfeit to true surrender, license. Over the years, I really have heard people use things like uh, the grace of God 
as a pretext for not only cheating on their spouses, but uh, cheating on federal laws, uh, fornicating with girlfriend or boyfriend. I mean, you name it. Rarely do people say like, you know, actually, I'm just disobeying God because I don't love Jesus more than my sin. They don't admit to themselves. License says that, you know, since Jesus already loves me, I can just do what I want. But listen, the love of God sets us free not to do what we want, but to do what he wants. And what's cool about the gospel and the Holy Spirit, it's even sets, he sets us free to want what he wants with his power. Both legalism and license end in the bitter fruit of oppression. They leave us to our own self-will that's still fallen and don't allow us to be in the energizing cycle of the power of God and the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's break down this last question. How? This is what I love. Jesus makes an expectation, but he just doesn't leave us there. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. This last question is, how do we do that? And we don't have to wonder. He, he spells it out very clearly. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. That's what it means to live in surrender to Jesus. But he goes on. Don't forget that preceding this, the way that we even love him in the first place is a big mystery. John later says this. He says, we love, this is John, 1 John 4, 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. This because thing drives the instructions of how we actually walk out this life lived in surrender to Jesus. So verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In this day, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So when he says, yet a little while, and the world will not see me, he's referencing his crucifixion and his burial. He's saying, hey, I'm about to get out of here. Why? Because I'm, I've already lived a perfect life, the life you should have lived, and I'm about to die the death that you should have died. I'm dying for the fact that you have failed to love me. And I know that already. Yet a little while and you won't see me. And then it says, you will see me, referencing the resurrection. Saying this, the only way that any of this can happen is if I die and I resurrect and I give you the power and release to you the spirit of the living God to help you do all the things that I've said that you're going to do, that on your own you're unable to do. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only pathway for us to truly love him back and to live in surrender to him. And it goes on, verse, verse 16, a little earlier, says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, meaning he's inside of me and he's therefore with you. And he says he will be inside of you. The same resurrection power that, that's going to lift me up from the grave is going to lift you up to new life and you will have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. So Jesus 
doesn't just expect great things and leave us to ourselves to figure it out, figure it out on our own. He sends this, his very spirit to empower us. It's, it's way different than you think, and it's way better than you can ever imagine. The adrenaline rush of walking with the spirit of the living God. And the, the, the final marker of it, our last verse that I love so much, he says, peace. Peace, verse 27, I leave with you. My peace I give you, and not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The mark of the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, and what distinguishes him from every other world leader in history, is that his leadership produces an abiding and unshakable peace. Other world leaders have have either done violence in one sense or, on the other hand, been unable to stop the spread of violence. They couldn't produce peace. No one else but Jesus has been able to produce peace because he took violence upon himself on the cross so that he could make peace between us and God. And my prayer today as I draw to a close is, that you can approach this question of who, who really is the master of your fate and the captain of your soul based on how you live your life. And I, I pray that you can really ask this question honestly and with a graven sincerity. Remember Henley in his poem just mocked at God. He says, it matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishment is the scroll, referring to the word of God, the demands of Jesus. He says it, it, it matters not. Listen, it, it matters much what God's word says and what Jesus expects. The charge from the scroll is the very judgment of a righteous God that was poured out willingly on his very son to atone for our sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And we either have a faith placed in the person who died on our behalf, or we're left to face the judgment of God being the captains of our own soul. And the gamble of faith, placing faith in ourself versus faith in the power and the person of Jesus you tell me, what is the Holy Spirit telling you that the true risk really is? Would you pray with me, please?